Presses Play. Hey everyone, and welcome to Girl Presses Play, the movie podcast where we talk about films, what we think about them, and what makes them so damn great. I'm your host, Alana Rafferty. Get comfy, grab some popcorn, and get ready, because we're about to press play. And now for our feature presentation. Hello, everybody, and welcome back. As always, I hope you all are doing well and staying safe and seeing all the movies you can possibly cram into one day, which is never a bad thing. Okay, maybe sometimes it is. (laughs) So the most important holiday in my family and in my personal life is Halloween. Thanksgiving comes in like a very close second, but Halloween was always the big kahuna. We start planning our decorations and our costumes and our themes as early as humanly possible. It was just, you know, what we loved and it's what I grew up loving as a kid. And since I believe you can never start spooky season too early, I decided to go with another horror film. Surprise, surprise, which granted... We haven't done one in a while, so it's not the 20th horror film we've done this season. But I should warn you guys right now, this is also kind of sort of a holiday movie. So if you're not ready for Jingle Bells and Mariah Carey on repeat, see you in a few months. Because today we are talking about the original and latest iteration of Black Christmas. One of the reasons I picked this pair is kind of obvious. I adore horror films, clearly. But while watching these two and comparing them, I also found some really interesting ideas, not only about how we talk about film, but how we talk about political issues in film and how audiences expect to receive those messages and ideas. Both in the early 70s and if we're being honest right now in 2021, both of these time periods are really intense in regards to their social political climates. And especially in those climates, there's a lot of changes and discussion regarding women's rights, as well as how we address those harder issues that come up when we talk about women's rights. I think there's been a huge shift in how these kinds of topics are depicted on screen. Some of it's for better and some of it's for worse. Before we get started with talking about these films, I do want to give a few trigger warnings. We will be talking about sexual assault and abortion on this episode, which are topics that are featured in the movies we're looking at today. So if you're uncomfortable with these topics, don't want to hear about them, totally fine, not a problem. Feel free to check out an earlier episode or we will see you back here next week for another episode. So without further ado, let's see what we can find out about Final Girls and Feminism as we take a look at 1974's Black Christmas from Bob Clark and 2019's remake from Sophia Tacall. Black Christmas. If this movie doesn't make your skin crawl, it's on too tight. I'm tired of hiding. I'm tired of running. Go, 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 go! Ho, 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 bitch. You mess with the wrong sisters. So the premise for the original film is very simple. While a group of sorority sisters stay in their house over the Christmas holiday break, a killer starts terrorizing and killing them off one by one. The screenwriter, Aroy Moore, was said to have been inspired by a series of murders that took place in Montreal and Westmount in the 40s, and its film's director, Bob Clark, who hilariously directed A Christmas Story 10 years later, didn't really rewrite the script, but he added a few more comedic elements to make it feel a little less like a typical horror movie. So when the film came out, 
most critics hated it. They called it formulaic. They called it trashy, overtly gory, like all sorts of terrible things. What I do think is interesting to note when thinking about these reviews is that this was one of the first major film releases to openly talk about abortion, which was legalized only a year before in the U.S. when it came out, and about five years before in Canada where the movie was produced and filmed. In the film, the main character Jess, played by Olivia Hussey, informs her now ex-boyfriend that she is pregnant, but she's going to be getting an abortion. Throughout the film, the ex-boyfriend in question tries and tries to get her to marry him and to keep the baby, but she insists that she has goals for her life that having a child would inhibit her from achieving. This must have been really, really shocking for most film critics and audiences at the time to hear about something so controversial, talked about so openly, and especially by the main character we're supposed to be rooting for. This, I think, is one of the film's strengths in its letting the female characters just be great but imperfect humans, not just pretty perfect female targets. This also goes for Margot Kidder's Barb as well, who is brash and at some level of inebriation most of the film. (laughs) But I think also you get a lot of reasons for why she is that brash and why she is inebriating herself and home for the holidays. And it shows that the filmmakers seemingly didn't want their characters begging for likability or forgiveness for their imperfections. We're just supposed to take them as they are. I think this, along with the running theme of women not being believed when something is wrong, makes it a very, I would say, female-minded movie, even though it was written and directed by two men. Hats off to you, A. Roy Moore and Bob Clark. You did a good job with portraying women on film. And you know... The whole movie shows just how women are generally undervalued or unseen in society, but it does it in a very subtle and thoughtful way through character actions and obstacles they face. So a great example is the time that the cop doesn't believe the mom in the police station when she says her daughter's missing. Every girl that goes missing in this film, they always chalk it up to, well, she's probably just run off with her boyfriend. Or another great example is the way that Peter, the ex-boyfriend, throws a tantrum when Jess makes it very clear that her ambitions are just as important as his. And the film isn't trying to beat you over the head with any politics or message. It just shows viewers aspects of female life that hadn't been really shown a lot before in film, and especially horror film. Film essayist Logan Ashley Kinzer brought up a really interesting counter-argument in his piece comparing these films. He wrote, There is, of course, an argument to make about the inherent sexism in a film about college girls being slowly and brutally murdered by a man. And there's no denying that the horror genre is often inherently sexist. I don't think you can make any argument that horror films don't exist within a sexist vacuum in the same way that you can't say that about any genre. Sexism is a societal, deeply rooted issue within Western American society. Of course it is bled into our entertainment media. I do think this is an important contextual note to bring up when talking about these films and most female-centered horror films in general. But while I don't want to say that the original film fully avoids this issue, it does really do its best to give the female characters agency and individuality. Thankfully, though, this film has been reviewed and revisited by film critics and audiences and given its rightful due and given its rightful analysis and has now become a cult hit. 
It is also largely credited for inspiring the OG slasher film Halloween, which came out just four years after this film. I remember meeting Steve Martin for this picture, Roxanne, a long time ago, and he said, you were in one of my favorite films of all time. And I said, oh, Romeo and Juliet? And he said, no, Black Christmas. I loved it. Saw it 27 times. I may be speaking for myself when I say that I had high hopes for the most recent remake of Black Christmas. It had a female indie director attached to it. It was produced by Blumhouse, who also made Get Out, which has become the gold standard for modern horror films. What I'm about to mention seems to be a recurring theme on this show as well as this season. But from my research, the production of this film was very, very, very rushed, as in written, cast and crewed up, film edited and released within a year. For any non-film folks who aren't familiar with filmmaking timelines, that's like attempting to run a marathon in an hour and a half. With that being said, this movie did everything the original film didn't do, and not in a good way <laughs> at all. While the original film subtly dove into various feminist issues and also presented just a really fun slasher flick at the same time, this film focused on feminism first, storytelling later. Ironically, this is most likely a product of the time we're in thanks to the Blumhouse's groundbreaking film Get Out, where now every horror film basically needs to have some sort of clear and present idea on the issues of today. There are discussions of patriarchy, a remix of Up on the Rooftop about a campus rape, and a petition to get sexist curriculum and professors out of the school. At some point, it starts to feel like two very different movies are fighting each other for dominance, but neither of them win by the end. And this amount of overtly socially conscious ideas within the film, it might have been okay or palatable if they were handled more delicately, especially with the issue of sexual assault. In the film, Riley, who is our final girl and a sexual assault survivor, is very much coerced into confronting her assailant at a frat party with singing that Up on the Rooftop remix, and in another scene is made to feel badly for not fighting the patriarchy enough, which to me came off as unintentional but very clear victim-blaming. Personally, I was very uncomfortable with how this whole thing was portrayed and handled. It made the event of her assault feel like a plot point that could be neatly fixed and not a traumatic event that has changed her for the rest of her life. And especially after that song, it really, it just seemed to disregard the fact that she basically relived her traumatic experience in front of her assailant and the entire frat house that supported him when he was initially accused. Whatever the topic you're depicting in your movie, women's rights, immigration, the opioid crisis, it seems that today you can't just have it be a part of the film, it has to be the film. And if that social issue is handled badly or not researched well enough, the whole movie is going to go down with it. And seeing how differently these films handle the same topic, it got me really wondering when and why this change happened. Probably one of the biggest reasons for this is how horror films are marketed in a post-Get Out world. Peel's film was able to become the box office behemoth it was because it appealed to non-horror fans as well as the die-hard horror fans. Since then, films like A Quiet Place has been marketed on daytime talk shows to audiences that usually wouldn't see a horror film, but would see, say, a film about a family trying to survive in uncertain times. 
clearly very relevant for today. I found with all of these horror films being marketed today, there's a bit of a, it's not horror, it's elevated horror, socially minded horror, that seems to color most of the marketing campaigns for all these horror films. And it honestly seems to discredit every other really great, interesting horror film that came out before it that did the exact same thing. As Kate Sanchez of ButWhyThough.com points out in her review of this version of the film, the marketing for this film has been dismissive of the original film's importance as one of the films used for feminist discourse in this genre, the subversive nature of, of including abortion as a main element of the plot, the politics of that film, and why Jess resonates with so many women today. You're so, you're so pushy, Chris! You never stop, do you? You just you push. don't stop you push. because they don't stop. Well, not everybody wants to be like you. Some of us are quite happy to you just disappear. What did you girls expect? Excuse me? I told you something like this was going to happen. Okay, you humiliated those guys up there. Of course they're pissed. And that gives them an excuse to harass us? Well, if a bunch of frat bros had gotten up and sang a song about how I don't know, women were just bimbos who like to show off their tits, then yeah, you'd be livid. It's a little different, Smidge. How? Why are you allowed to say all this shit about men and we're supposed to just sit here and take it? Because men have all the power. I believe when talking about horror film, as well as women's rights, it's really important to recognize the progress we're making now directly stems from the progress made in the past by those that came before us. If we act as if the future is the only valuable part of the narrative, then we're only left with this set of abstract ideas about what we want rather than tangible goals and actions and ways to get those goals. To me, that's the biggest difference between these two versions of the same film. If you want to see some great horror films from the past that talked about important issues, I recommend The Fog, The People Under the Stairs, the original Night of the Living Dead, Candyman, and the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre, just to name a few. These films all paved the way for Get Out and the most recent version of The Invisible Man. I highly recommend watching these films and letting them pave the way for your next socially conscious horror film, or even just your next discussion on social issues. You'll never know what kind of ideas they bring up. As always, thank you so, so much for listening. I hope you found this interesting and insightful. We absolutely love to hear your thoughts. Feel free to reach out on social media. We love, we really do love getting feedback from you guys and just always want to make the best podcast we can and figure out ways to make it more awesome for you. Tune in next week when we have a Penelope Cruz double feature, which is never a bad thing. I dare you to change my mind on that. Thanks again for listening. Stay safe and keep watching movies. See you next time. Up on the housetop, reindeer paws. Out jumps good old Santa Claus. Down through the chimney with lots of toys. All for the little one's Christmas joys. Ho, ho, ho. Who wouldn't go? Ho, ho, ho. Who wouldn't go? Up on the housetop, click, click, click. Down through the chimney with old Saint Nick. Thanks so much for listening. Be sure to check back every Tuesday for new episodes. And be sure to check us out on our Patreon page, where you can support the show and get some really cool exclusive stuff for doing it. Special thanks to John F., Feriolo Fencing, LLC, Mariano Dwyer, and Helen Rafferty. For news on upcoming episodes, be sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Girl Presses Play. 
The show is written, produced, and hosted by Alana Rafferty. Intro music is composed by Asha Iwanowitz, and our logo design is by Mark Sauve. Thanks again. See you next time. Girl presses play.